0: I thank you for this day. I thank you for Helen and her willingness to come up here and teach, Lord, and just pray that you will uh, be with her and um, help her to share what it is, Lord, that you have prepared for us today, Father. And um, I pray that you can give us open hearts and minds to hear um, what it is that you want us to take away from this, Lord. And um, just bless Helen. I thank you for what you've taught her through this and and how you've used this passage in her life, Lord. And um, yeah, I just thank you. And I just pray that you will be with her and she will feel your presence as she speaks. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Kim. All right. Let's see if I can do this properly. I don't know. Like right here. Is that what Annie said? Oh. Mm-hmm. Is that okay, Annie? Yep. Yeah? Okay. Is it okay if I move this down here? Right. Well, um, I'm just going to address the elephant in the room. I am not Ellen Dykus. um, But speaking of elephants, has anyone here ever heard of the series, the children's book series, Elephant and Piggy? Yeah, right. Well, I work in a library and the other day a kid uh, checked out one of the Elephant and Piggy books called Waiting is Not Easy. Mm -hmm. So the premise of the story is this. Piggy has a surprise for her friend, Elephant. One caveat, Elephant has to wait for the surprise. Over the course of the book, he struggles and groans as he waits and waits. Will the surprise be worth it? Well, I think Elephant is onto something because waiting is not easy. I'd like you all to think back to the last time you had to wait for something. Maybe something you wanted or needed. Waiting for a job, waiting for the one, waiting for reconciliation, waiting for your loved one to turn to Jesus, waiting for things to go back to normal. Or instead of waiting in anticipation of something good, maybe you're waiting in dread of something bad, waiting for a storm, waiting for the rejection, waiting for a confrontation you know is coming, waiting for a test result. What would you do if you had an opportunity to shorten that waiting or eliminate it completely? Bypass the waiting and go straight to the resolution. Would you take it? David faced that very same question in 1 Samuel 24. And today we are going to take a closer look at what he chose to do. I'm also going to refer to the two Psalms this week, Psalm 57 and 142, which scholars believe may have been written when he was in the cave. So I have five points today. And I really try, you know how Linda Ruth always has like a cool acronym. I tried, I tried, I really tried, but I couldn't do it. So I'm just going to tell you what the five are. And I'll tell you ahead of time, because I know you like, if you're like me, you like to write them down ahead of time. So five points, ready? Waiting hurts. Waiting strengthens. Waiting aligns. Waiting allows, and finally, waiting ends. So waiting hurts, waiting strengthens, waiting aligns, waiting allows, and finally waiting ends. Okay, so let's pick up in First Samuel 24 and set the scene. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. David has been waiting, waiting for an end to his suffering, waiting for God to fulfill his promise that David will be king. David is hiding out in a cave in the wilderness of En Gedi. So En Gedi is one of the wilderness, wilderness cities allocated to Judah in the book of Judges. And if you imagine the, the Dead Sea, I kind of imagine it as like a skinny avocado. Um, it's it's on the west coast of the Dead Sea, sort of in the middle. Okay. It's a series of deep ravines formed by four rivers that feed into the sea. Today it is a nature preserved and has been described as an oasis in the middle of the desert. There are a number of caves, some deep enough to hold whole herds of goats. And in fact, Engedi literally means spring of the kid, as in baby goat. In this case, this cave was large enough to house David and the ragtag group of 600 men who have chosen to throw in their lots with him. He just barely escaped by the skin of his teeth in chapter 23. How do you think he's feeling at this point? David is homeless, unjustly accused, a fugitive of the law, on the run, Perhaps we can get a glimpse into his mental state when we look at the Psalms that accompany this passage. In Psalm 57, he refers to storms of destruction. He writes about being trampled. And I kind of, I feel like he's feeling tossed and adrift and battered. He writes about being among fiery beasts, lions. He writes about a net for his steps, traps, men with teeth of arrows and spears and tongues of sharp swords. David is feeling hunted like an animal by Saul's elite team of 3,000 men, which, by the way, is five times as many as David's 600. In Psalm 142, he writes, There is none who take notice of me. No one cares for my soul. David feels utterly alone and forgotten. This brings me to my first somewhat obvious point, and it's this. Waiting hurts because it's a form of suffering. I have thought about this at length, why waiting can feel like the most difficult thing in the world. And I think it has to do with the fact that while we were created to live with God forever and in eternity, after the fall, suddenly our lives had a timeline. There was an expiration date, aging, illness, death. Time, which was once an unlimited resource, suddenly became finite, scarce. Waiting feels uncomfortable, unbearable even, because we know the clock is ticking, even as our eternal souls rage against the dying of the light. Waiting is hard because it makes us feel helpless. It reveals our true state to ourselves, even if subconsciously. We can't press a fast-forward button and skip the parts that are sad or boring or scary and get to the good parts. Waiting forces us to confront that we are not in control. Waiting is hard because it can be lonely. We were made to be in community with others to know and be known. But sometimes when we are in a season of waiting like David, we can feel alone, abandoned, forgotten when we are waiting. I remember going through a long season of waiting when I was a young newlywed and then a young mother. My husband is in medicine. So during those first 10 years of marriage, he was still in school and training. So we never lived long in one place. We'd get somewhere, move in, unpack, and in a year or two, be back in the boxes and moving again. It was during this period that we also had two of our three kids, and I became a stay-at-home mom. Being at home in a new place with no family or friends and two young children under the age of five felt incredibly isolating. I longed for community. It was hard feeling like by the time I made friends and my bearings, It would be time to say goodbye again. I knew that eventually we would settle in one place, but that time felt so far off. I look back at that time now as a season of waiting, and that waiting was hard. My second point today is that is this. Waiting strengthens our faith. Waiting strengthens our faith. Okay, so has anyone here heard of the term hypertrophy? I had to practice that like 10 times. I still can't say it perfectly. Hypertrophy. Anyone? No. All right. So I got this definition from Men's Health magazine and hypertrophy describes the growth of muscle cells through exercise, explains strength and conditioning coach Josh Taylor. When we train, we create little micro tears within the muscle cells we use, he says. The recovery process essentially rebuilds these tears to make them grow back bigger and stronger. Okay, this is not just Men's Health magazine. This is actually well documented in many scientific journals and, art- and articles, uh, Michelle Olson, who's a PhD exercise physiologist and professor of exercise science um, at Auburn University, says this: "In order to build muscle, you must break down muscle tissue using a weight that is challenging enough to cause microtears, which, when repaired, form denser, stronger fibers." Priscilla Clark, Dr. Priscilla Clarkson, also a professor of exercise science at the University of Massachusetts, says this. As these little tears repair themselves, they prepare the muscles to handle the same type of exercise better the next time. The muscle gets more resilient, meaning the next time you do that same exercise, you won't get damaged as much, she said. Over time, they'll build up and become a stronger fiber to lift more weight. So, just as those microscopic tears in your physical muscles are necessary in order for them to grow being forced to wait causes little micro tears in the fibers of our faith muscles. The strain, the stress, the pain of waiting can ultimately strengthen our faith. Waiting forces us to call on God over and over again, reminding ourselves of both our dependence on him and also who he is. This is why David, despite his dire circumstances and the crushing emotional and mental weight he feels, proclaims in Psalm 57 too, that God is most high. God is the most powerful, more powerful than Saul and his army or anything that threatens David. He can pour out his anguish and pain and in the same breath, remind himself that God fulfills his purpose for David. In his lonely and impoverished state, David can declare that God will surround him with the righteous and deal bountifully with him. That's from Psalm 142. In these Psalms, David is both simultaneously calling on God to deliver him and praising God for who he is. In Psalm 57, David writes that he takes refuge in the shadow of God's wings. I think it's interesting, and, and there's a commentator who thought this was very interesting, that even though he's in a cave writing this, David chooses to describe God's protection in the form of wings. A cave can be protection, but also a trap. A cave is cold, lifeless stone. Wings are part of a living, breathing being, providing warmth and nurture. A cave passively provides shelter. But the mother bird actively encircles the young with her wings. And like a fierce mother bird, God is active in protecting David, and he is active in protecting us. Looking back on that season of waiting, I see that this was true for myself as well. God met me and comforted me, even though many times during that season, my spiritual life essentially lived off of Sunday morning sermons, if I didn't fall asleep from sleep deprivation, and drive-by prayers. You know what I mean. Those quiet, desperate cries in your heart to our Lord, in between diapers, and spilled milk, and tantrums, and bickering with my husband about the dishes. He taught me that I can endure the waiting and unsettledness and general chaos of life at that time, and that most importantly, he was with me. He responded to even the most anemic and weak efforts on my part to seek him. That season of waiting made my faith muscles grow. Not faith in my ability to be a good Christian and do all the things I'm supposed to do, but faith in our Lord who does all the heavy lifting when we come to him in our weakness and need. In this past January, my dear 15-year-old niece was diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer. We had just gone to Disney World with them over Thanksgiving, actually. So the news turned our lives upside down. It was as if someone had just put us into a bag and violently shook us. And the the mental image I had was, you know, if you've ever made Muddy Buddies, you have to like shake, 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 shake. That's that's how I felt. I was in the bag.
1: As many as you who
0: have gone through similar medical journeys know, whether personally or adjacently as I am, you know that there is a lot of waiting, uncertainty, and a nuns. In times like these, I am thankful for those previous training sessions in waiting and trusting. It doesn't make this situation any less painful to go through, but I find that God's comfort feels even sweeter. It's as as if those little micro tears in my faith was that my faith was forced to endure has enabled me to lean in deeper to God and experience his love and presence in a more meaningful way. My third point today is that waiting aligns our will with God's will. Waiting aligns our will with God's will. So let's get back to the passage. We're going to pick up in verse 3. And he, meaning Saul, came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Right, There's a lot to unpack here. So Saul, at this point, with his elite team of assassin warriors, is narrowing in on David. Nature calls, and Saul enters into the very cave where, unbeknownst to him, David is already hiding. Saul is completely vulnerable. David could very easily sneak up on him and kill him, ending David's suffering and bringing about God's promised throne for him. David's men are convinced that God has delivered Saul into David's hands to be killed so that David can ascend the throne. And I think if you read between the lines, maybe also end their persona non grata status as well. Coming into power and prestige as his entourage in court, which, if you know David's story, many of many of these men do end up becoming the nucleus of his kingdom. Okay, so what would you do if you were David? Your men are drawing swords, clamoring, egging you on. Here's your chance. What would you do? David doesn't kill Saul, but instead cuts off a corner of Saul's robe, and then is immediately conscience-stricken. Why? Okay, so I had to... Imagine this, right? Like I was like, how, first of all, how did he do this? Like he's got sneak up on salt with a sword, a dagger? Like, how can that is, I, so I don't know, you know, the skill required to do something like that, undetected aside, <laughs> this act is essentially a symbolic gesture declaring claim to the throne. Because if you remember in Near Eastern cultures, the robe is synonymous with royal office or status, right? So by taking a piece of the robe. David was essentially symbolically declaring revolt, signifying the transfer of power from Saul to David. Cutting off a piece of the robe also made it non-compliant with Torah standards, essentially invalidating Saul's claim to kingship. And if you remember earlier, Samuel tears his robe, and that was also symbolic of Saul's kingdom and monarchy being torn apart. But Saul is still the ruler, and David feels remorse because he knows That his action is actually an act of rebellion against the Lord, who commanded Israelites not to curse their rulers in Exodus 22, 28. Tim Chester, in his um, commentary on 1 Samuel, wrote this. David is conscience stricken because he refuses to grab the kingdom. In the cave, David had the opportunity to skip his life of suffering and fast forward to the throne. But that is not God's way. It was not God's plan. So it was not his Dale Ralph Davis wrote this, um, Yahweh's will must be achieved in Yahweh's way. The end that God has ordained must be reached by the means that God approves. However, sometimes when we are in the midst of a season of waiting, it's natural to want the waiting to end. And sometimes opportunities for a resolution may arise, but it's not always as clear as it is is in this situation. Um, And it's not always obvious which direction we should go. Should we take the opportunity or continue to wait on God? How can we discern the difference between our own desires and God's timing? Um, And just quickly to address that prophecy that David's uh, David's men had mentioned, Robert D. Bergen says this. This prophecy they refer to is not anywhere in the scriptures. It could be a false prophecy or perhaps it was an actual prophecy, but misapplied to Saul. So here's a practical point when we're trying to discern God's will in our lives. And I'm going to borrow Mary J. Evans' words because her words are, I think she says it really well. Any interpretation of God's involvement in our circumstances must be based on an awareness of the character of God and on his clearly revealed purposes. Any interpretation of God's involvement in our circumstances must be based on an awareness of the character of God and on his clearly revealed purposes. Romans 12.2 says this. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. David knew that murdering Saul would be against God's will because he knew God's word and God's character. As we endure the suffering that waiting brings and seeking the Lord through it, we are undergoing the process of sanctification. We are learning who God is when we wait on him and seek him through talking to him, and reading his word, and thinking about him. The more opportunities we have to know him, the more he will shape us into who he wants us to be, and our desires and wants will sync up more and more with his. My fourth point today is that waiting allows God to do the heavy lifting. Waiting allows God to do the heavy lifting. We pick up in verse 8. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul. My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As a proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? after a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. In this passage, David tries to reconcile with Saul, calling him my father and presenting evidence that the premise of Saul's attacks is false. However, he is not condoning Saul's atrocious behavior towards him, nor is he brushing things under the rug. David is not being a pushover here. Instead, David makes it clear to Saul that he has treated the king properly, not because of anything Saul has done or might do, but because of what the Lord has done. David's respect for human authority was based on his respect for divine authority. When he says in verse 12, may the Lord judge between me and you, may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. And then he kind of repeats it again in verse 15. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand, David is basically saying, Saul, what you are doing is wrong, and your attempts to kill an innocent man violates God's commands and puts you in danger of bringing divine wrath on yourself. David was pleading for Saul to save himself, not just spare David. This is an important point. By waiting on God, David allowed God to do the work. Rather than avenging himself for Saul's wrongdoing, David would allow God to do so on his behalf. This freed David's conscience from any wrongdoing without whitewashing or excusing Saul's actions. David obeyed God and trusted God to handle the rest. During the 10 years, I stayed home full-time with my children. I think that if I could grade myself as a stay-at-home mom, I'd probably give myself a B-minus. I mean, I love my kids and would throw myself in front of a moving train for them. But but being a full-time caretaker to young children is and probably will always be one of the hardest things I've ever done. Half the time, I had no idea what I was doing, and I was mostly winging it. Women's Bible studies were especially a godsend, because even if I didn't do the study one week, okay, most weeks, Um, I would still show up in part just so I could glean some wisdom from the more seasoned moms. But I think one of the hardest adjustments for me, especially in the first five years of being a stay-at-home mom, was this constant feeling of wanting to do something and then not having enough time to do it. Okay, If you know me, you know that I love taking on projects. I have said that sometimes I feel like I'm juggling a million balls and it feels crazy, But I think secretly, I kind of enjoy it. (laughs) By the way, as a society, we put a lot of pressure on women today to be able to do it all. Thriving career, amazing mother, perfect marriage, etc. I am not endorsing this mentality. But because I have this inability to sit still, it was really challenging to suddenly have to cater to these little, helpless, adorable, tiny dictators who just could not understand that mommy had ambitions and a to-do list. They just wouldn't cooperate, those little boogers. (laughs) You don't have to be a parent to relate to this. We've all been in situations where our efforts or plans are frustrated. On a deeper level, have you ever felt like you had a dream or idea or hope, but your hands are tied somehow? Whether by circumstance or opportunity or physical limitations? Similarly, Lots of us have had the experience of isolating at home these last two years, and we are all too familiar with a feeling of restriction, unable to live life fully, of being hidden away. Some years ago, I learned about a Carmelite nun, St. Therese. Um, Therese saw herself as the little flower of Jesus. She did not see herself as a towering cedar or oak of faith, not some great theologian changing the course of church history because she was just a simple wildflower in the forest, unnoticed by the greater population, yet growing and giving glory to God. This is how she understood herself before the Lord, simple and hidden, but blooming where God had planted her. Therese believed passionately that Jesus was delighted in his little flower. you think about it, it's true, right? A little wildflower can be just as captivating as a rose or a lily, and she believed that Jesus was fascinated her, by her as his little flower. Um, and I didn't write this down in my talk, but there was this quote she wrote in one of her letters that I thought was so great. She's like she said she imagines herself to be that little wildflower that brings Jesus joy when he looks down his feet. You know, so even though she didn't feel like she had any great accomplishments from a worldly perspective, her daily Struggles just to submit and be obedient to God, she felt like those things brought great delight to the Lord. She wrote in one of her letters Jesus does not demand great actions from us, but simply surrender and gratitude. Elizabeth Elliott in Let Me Be a Woman wrote, The life of faith is lived one day at a time, and it has to be lived, not always looked forward to as though the real living were around the next corner. It is today for which we are responsible. God still owns tomorrow. Waiting allows God to do the heavy lifting. It helped me to recognize just how much my identity and self-worth had been tied up in my to-do lists and accomplishments. I learned I could trust God with my dreams, hopes, talents, and interests, resting in the knowledge that he had me exactly where he wanted me to be, knowing my future was in his hands. Once I put those things into his hands to carry, I felt lighter. I was free to plant my roots where I was and to bloom, to lean into the delight of simply being his beloved daughter. This brings me to my final point today, which is this. Waiting ends at the cross. Waiting ends at the cross. In verse 16, we pick up. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me in your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you, sh- you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Wow. What a turnaround, right? It's pretty remarkable. Saul is weeping with remorse. He admits his wrongdoing, even goes as far as to bless David and confirm that he will be king. Waiting over, right? Happy ending for David and Saul? I won't give it completely away, but considering we still have seven chapters left to go, And also considering Saul's past history, I wouldn't count on it. Mm -hmm. It's not hard to guess that this moment of reconciliation doesn't last. David must continue to wait for deliverance and the throne. Sometimes this is true in our lives as well. Perhaps you have waited for something, waited on God to provide or deliver, but the waiting didn't lead to the outcome you expected. Or perhaps the waiting has continued far longer than you would have ever guessed. Proverbs sixteen nineteen says this. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Okay, you may be saying, Helen, how is that verse comforting in this situation? How is that comforting when the re- results came back positive for cancer? Or the pregnancy test was negative? Or when the interview didn't pan out? Or fill in the blank? Okay, I had to ask you guys this. How would you really feel if you knew everything that would happen to you? If somebody, if I could hand you a notebook right now and said, this is all the things that's going to happen starting now, good and bad. I, I'm not sure that I would want to take it. I saw this art film recently. It was weird, a little violent. I don't recommend it, but the premise of this film was it's a short film. It was basically like there was a, a magic box that would tell you how you would die. And In each of these situations, these people lived in dread of that day. They were always paranoid about the thing that was going to kill them. So instead of knowing, you know, being able to predict the future or being able to interpret every event and why it's happening, we can take comfort knowing that the God who establishes our steps is the very same God who is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his work. That's Psalm 145.7. He promises this. He cannot change who he is. And he is with us. The almighty God is with us in our waiting. He knows our fears. He knows our suffering. And finally, he knows the outcome. We can put the future in his hands for we know our future is secure in him. In Hosea 2.14, it says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. God brought David to the wilderness of Engedi so that he could meet him there. I admit that there are many times when, faced with waiting and uncertainty, I am more like Saul than David. One moment, faith-filled and repentant, and next, grasping to my earthly kingdoms. In those inevitable moments where waiting produces faltering, I am reminded that my waiting ultimately ends in the cross. Like David, Jesus was also tempted in the wilderness to shorten the waiting, to bring about his kingdom without suffering. However, he refused to take the shortcut and went willingly and obediently to the cross so that you and I could be reconciled to God so that we don't have to walk through difficult things alone, but we can bring our doubts to him and be carried through by the living God. Waiting is not easy, but sometimes God allows us to wait in the uncomfortable, wait in the painful, or wait in the lonely. Waiting can be long, but Moses waited 40 years in the desert. Those ravines I talked about in Engedi took millions of years to carve. While his purposes for this are not always clear this side of heaven, we can take comfort in his presence, and ultimately we can rest in the fact that one day, All of our waiting and longing will be redeemed. Ending not with a what, but a who. He is at the end of our waiting, and he is what we need. All right, so do you remember that children's book I told you about in the beginning? The one where Elephant must wait for a promised surprise from his friend, Piggy? Here's how the story ends. Elephant starts to worry because the sun is setting, and it's getting dark, and he becomes increasingly distressed he starts to doubt if it is even worth all the waiting. However, it's at this point of desperation and panic that the surprise that he had been waiting for is revealed. An incredible star-filled night sky. He wouldn't have been able to see it during the day. The only way to witness the breathtaking beauty was to wait. So David concludes his psalm by turning his eyes to heaven. Oh, Lord, you are great. We are small and weak and frail, but you are great and you are good. And you know exactly what we need when we need it. We thank you, Lord, that you are always with us, that you never leave us and we can rest in that. We thank you for the work that you are doing in our lives and in the lives of people um, around us. We pray for the people of Ukraine as they wait in this really dark time, Lord. Lord, would you be their peace? Would you provide what they need? Would you give them more of yourself? We thank you, Lord, for your words. Help them to seek deeply into our heart. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.